0: This is the first sermon of uh, 2020, so uh, that's kind of exciting. And uh, when you think about the new year, uh, typically uh, most of us, uh, as we think about that, think about life change. You know, you think about habits to develop, rhythms to put in your life, uh, New Year's resolutions to make, and you kind of think back, you reflect back on last year, and you think about things that you did that you want to stop doing, and then you think about things that maybe you, you uh, didn't do, you know, that you want to start doing. And you start thinking about life change, how to, how to put new habits in, how to, how to change some things in your life. And next week, uh, we're going to start a sermon series where we talk about that. We're going to talk about rhythms that you can set in your life that put you in the way of transformation. It's going to be a practical series. I'm so excited to talk about that. But uh, this Sunday, what I want to do is I want to stop and reflect a little bit on kind of what's at the roots of life change. You know, we're going to talk about rhythms and habits and things like that, but today I want to stop and just talk about, like, what's underneath, what's at the bottom of actually life transformation. Because it's possible to, uh, you know, just put, you know, rhythms and habits in there and just kind of do behavior modification. You you just kind of change your life on a surface level. But what Christianity is about, it's about deep-rooted life change. It's about... It's about transformation from the inside out. And so this morning, I want to kind of begin by talking about how does that happen? What comes before the habits? And, And I think what we see is that true life change happens when we have a real living encounter with Jesus. A true life change occurs only when you come face to face with the living God in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at a story in the Gospel of John where a woman uh, just, she, she has an encounter with Jesus, a life-changing encounter with Jesus that uh, sets her in a whole new direction in life. And as we get into it, uh, this is the story of a woman that Jesus met, and it's important to kind of contrast her with the man that Jesus met before her. So John 4 comes right after John 3, where uh, Jesus talked to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus and this woman, they couldn't be more different in their lives. So Nicodemus was a Jew, this woman was a Samaritan. Uh, he was a well-known ruler, and she was a nameless woman. Nicodemus was an upright Pharisee, and she was a notorious sinner. But as they encountered Jesus, both of them experienced radical transformation. And if you don't re- relate to someone like Nicodemus, maybe you relate to this woman. If you're here and you struggle with shame, uh, if, you're he- if you're here and maybe you're frustrated by habits that you, that you have in your life, you've been trying to break them and you just can't seem to do it. If you're here and you've ever struggled with brokenness, hopefully you can relate to this woman. And I want to just kind of bring us through her story and kind of draw us in and, and hopefully we can be changed by Jesus just like she was. As we go through the story, um, I want to just point out three things in the, nar- in the narrative. So number one, we're going to see that Jesus gets this woman in touch with her thirst. Second of all, he gets her in touch with her problem. And then finally, he's going to get her in touch with her Savior. Uh, so her thirst, her problem, her Savior, it's all here in John 4, and it leads to this woman's transformation. And so uh, let's just get into it this morning. We'll start here in verse 1. We'll dive right in. Verse 1 says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing, baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, so the story opens up, and Jesus is on a journey. And this is a very familiar journey. Jesus had taken this journey over and over again throughout the Gospel of John, from the southern region of Judea, the countryside of Judea, to the northern uh, region of Galilee, back and forth. He was always going back and forth between these these two places. But this time, uh, notice we see that Jesus makes a stop in Samaria. So it says in verse 4, And he had to pass through the land of Samaria. So Jesus, uh, wearied on his journey, he stops in the, in the city of Sychar, in the region of Samaria, and rests, uh, and he stops there, he rests fr- on his journey. Now here's what we need to know about Samaria. In the ancient world, Samaria was not a stop. Uh, this was not a place that any self-respecting Jew would ever stop at, because the Jews viewed Samaritans as half-breeds. Uh, the, the Samaritans were, were absolutely and untouchably unclean. And, of course, there's a story behind this. So, like, uh, s- uh, years early, uh, earlier, 722 B.C., there was an Assyrian king named Sargon. He invaded this area of Judea, and he, uh, he conquered it, and they, he brought in foreigners, uh, pagan people to go in there and intermix and intermarry with the Jews in this area. And they did. And so by the time that, uh, of Jesus' day, the, the Samaritans were, uh, they were viewed as half-breeds. They are of mixed race. Uh, they weren't uh, a pure-blood uh, Jewish people. And, and not only were they of mixed race, the Jews also saw that they had mixed religion. And so these pagan people, they brought in their pagan beliefs, and they kind of mixed it with Judaism. And so they developed sort of this quasi-Jewish heretical belief system. And so uh, kind of the, the upshot is, for a Jew, a Samaritan was an unclean person with offensive beliefs. They would never go there, never even think about going to Samaria. But here Jesus goes there. And this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus is always going to places like this, isn't he? You you go through the Gospels, Jesus is always touching people that are untouchable. He's always going places that no people would, nobody would ever dream of going. He's always entering into those dark places because this is just what Jesus does. This is who he is. This is the, this is the reason why he came. And so Jesus goes right into this area of Samaria, and he's resting there from his journey, and he he encounters a visitor. He encounters a woman, and this is not just any woman. Uh, This woman that Jesus encounters, this is the most unclean, untouchable person that Jesus could ever encounter. Uh, Not only is she a Samaritan, but she's a Samaritan woman, and not only is she a woman, but she's a woman with a past. She is, uh, she's notorious in this town. She, uh, she's got this checkered history. And, and the story, what it tells us is that this woman, uh, she, she's been through not, not one, not two, not three, not four, but five failed marriages. And the man she's living with now is, is not her husband. And so this woman in her town would, would be well known as a notorious Notorious sinner. And so there she is, and she's approaching Jesus. And, you know, as you think about this woman, if you just get into her head, uh, you got to see here that she was very, very uh, shamed and embarrassed by this sin. Because notice it says that the woman came to draw water at the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour, uh, that was high noon. And this is unusual because in the ancient world, uh, women, they normally drew water in early evening. Uh, this was when uh, the weather was cooler, and, and they would go with the other women for uh, safety and to socialize. But here's this woman, and she's, and she's coming a- at noon to draw water, and she's all alone. Why is she doing this? Well, she's doing this to avoid shame, is what she's doing. You see, this was a small town. And we all know that in small towns, uh, your business is everybody else's business, everybody would have known what she, was, what she had done, and, 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 and rather than going with all the other women and, and facing the sideways glances and the, and the jeers and the rejection of all the other women, she's going at noon t- to, to be alone. Maybe you've heard that now, a famous TED Talk by Brene ba- Brown, and she talks about shame, and she says uh, in this talk, she says the difference between guilt and shame is this: guilt is about behavior, I've made a mistake. Shame is about self, I I am a mistake. And that's what this woman is feeling. I mean, she's, it, here she is, she has this past, and everybody knows it, and she can't go back and change it, and she's living in guilt and shame. It's not just that she's made some mistakes, she is a mistake. And so she's coming here to draw water at noon like she always does, and she's alone, and she's settling for this life of isolation and pain. And as she's going to the well, as she's, as she's going to draw water, she notices that somebody's there. As she approaches, she's thinking, man, I hope there's nobody there. And she looks up, and there's, and there's this person at the well. And it's not just anybody. This is a man. This is a Jewish man. And if you could just get into her head for just a minute, you know, you've got to know that she was thinking, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. There's somebody there. And not only is it a, is it a, a person there, it's a man. It's a Jewish man. He's going to mock me. He's going to shame me. He's going to embarrass me. I just want to get this over with. But as she approaches the well, you know that Jesus doesn't want to do any of this stuff. He doesn't want to mock her. He doesn't want to shame her. He doesn't want to heap more embarrassment on her. He wants to offer her something life-changing. And so she comes up to the well. Jesus looks at her, and he says, give me a drink. <laughs> and she can't believe this, because this is a Jew. This is a Jewish rabbi, and she's, li- she's like, You're, you, a, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, for something to drink? don't you know I'm unclean? Don't you know we're not supposed to be talking right now? And it says here that the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink from, uh, from a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you would have known the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he's offering her this gift. He's saying, what I have to offer you is living water. It's like nothing you've ever tasted before. And it's yours for the taking. Now, this woman, she has no idea what he's talking about here. She, she, she kind of looks at him and she si- she's like, she says, uh, you know, what are you talking about, sir? You know, you, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Uh, do you know, wh- where do you get this living water? Are you greater than, than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. So she hears, she doesn't quite get the metaphor. Uh, she's, she's like, you know, do you, uh, you don't even have anything to draw water with. What do you mean, give me a drink? Do you, this is Jacob's, do you know what well you're at? This is kind of a big deal. This is Jacob's well. Is there some other well that you know about that you're gonna give me water from? Like, at this point, she still thinks he's talking about H2O. But Jesus is gonna double down on the metaphor. And he says here in verse uh, 13, he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up in him to eternal life. And so Jesus here, he's going to continue to give her the metaphor. And he says, no, 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 what I'm talking about here is living water. Water, I'm talking about a well that wells up for eternal life. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is giving her a metaphor, and he's trying to get her in touch with her thirst. Now, this woman, if you could just get into her sandals, get into her shoes for a while, you know that she's a bundle of thirsts. She is thirsty for dignity. I mean, she's been living in shame. She's thirsty for companionship. She's been going here every day alone. She's thirsty for love, you know? She's thirsty for romance, something real, a man who will finally love her and care for her the way that she wants to be loved. And Jesus, what he's saying here is he's saying, listen, in all of your thirsts and in all of these longings, there's one at the very bottom. There's one underneath it all. And it's a thirst for living water. Now, later on in John 17, uh, John gives us some information about what this living water is. He says, this living water is eternal life. And he says, this is eternal life, that you may know the only God and His Son whom He has sent. And so he's saying, you've, I know you've got all of these longings and all of this shame and all of this stuff that you've been up to, but there's something underneath it all. There's a thirst that you have deeper than everything else, and it's a thirst that can only be satiated w- with a relationship with your Heavenly Father. It's a thirst that, that you have to know the living God. It's, it's, it's a thirst at a deep soul level for a relationship with your Creator. And he says, You've been going from man to man, from pursuit to pursuit, doing all these things, but I'm telling you, at the bottom of your life is a thirst. And I am offering to satiate that thirst. Centuries later, there was a, a child prodigy, uh, prodigy who uh, who's, uh, grew into a groundbreaking physicist and mathematician in the 17th century, and his name was Blaise Pascal. And he had this dramatic conversion in his life, and he wrote this book called The Pensées, and it's kind of his thoughts or his reflections on life, and he kind of puts his finger on this thirst. He says, what else does this craving and helplessness claim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he he tries in vain to fill, but none can help since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite, immutable object. In other words, by God himself. What Jesus is saying, what Blaise Pascal is saying, is that each one of us carries around inside ourselves an infinite abyss that can only be filled with God himself. This is what's at the bottom of your life out of all of your longings and all of your wants and all of your desires, there's one soul-level need that you have beneath everything else, and it's the need to know God. You need living water. And so Jesus gives her this metaphor, and I think now that the woman, she's starting to get it, because you see there in in verse 15, she, uh, she looks at Jesus, and she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. You see, she's starting to get it. You know, she's Jesus has given her this metaphor and she's he's cast a line out there and she's taken the bait and he's reeling her in and she's kind of got it, and she says, you know, I don't really know exactly what you're talking about, but I resonate with this. There is a longing that I have that nothing seems to fill. And I've tried to f- fill it with all sorts of things, but I'm still yearning, and what you're saying is really making a lot of sense. Sir, give me this water. So that I won't have to ever come here to this shameful place again. And maybe you relate to this woman. Maybe Jesus' offer is, is kind of resonating with your own life this morning. You're thirsty. Life has left you thirsty. And Jesus is saying, I'm what you're looking for. But notice at this point, the conversation turns. Uh, there's th- something Jesus does, it does here is actually very, very shocking because Jesus not only has to get G- this woman in touch with her thirst, he also has to get her in touch with her problem. So notice here uh, w- what Jesus does. He, he does something that is, um, it's honestly, it's kind of rude. It's, it's kind of a rude non sequitur. It's, it seems out of the blue, and, and it's kind of like baffling. Why does Jesus say this? And if I said something like what Jesus does here, uh, y- you, you would fire me. <laughs> if, I did, if you went to a counselor and, and the counselor tried to pull something like this on you, you would leave that counselor, you would never go back. If a, friend, if a friend tried to tell you this, you would break that friendship, you would never talk to that person again. Because what Jesus does here, uh, it seems so rude and it seems so odd. Because notice here, Jesus, he's looking at her, and, 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 and he, she says, I want this living water. Yes, he's got her on the hook, and she says, I want this. And he says, oh, you want the living water? Let's talk about your sex life. And she's like, come again, Jesus? <laughs> Jesus said to her, go call your husband, this is in verse 16, and come here. And the woman ans- answered him, and you could almost feel her straightening up here a little bit. I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you're with now, the man you're with now, is not even your husband. What you said is true. What is Jesus doing here? It's like bait and switch. Like, yeah, I want the living water. Okay, let's talk about your sex life. And it's almost like, I mean, she, she knows what, that she's done. She knows her past. She doesn't Je- need Jesus to tell her. And it's almost like she's got this open, gaping wound, and Jesus is ripping the scab off. It's like he's got, she's got this shame, and Jesus is just rubbing his, her noses in it. Why is Jesus doing this? What is the point of, of, of bringing all of this up in the conversation right here? Well, it's because Jesus is doing something here very important. Uh, before you or I or this woman can experience the living water, we need to acknowledge our problem. We need to acknowledge that there is a tragic pattern in our lives. What is, what is it? Well, notice this w- for this woman, Jesus is telling her, he's saying, go get your husband. W- what he's saying is he's saying, you want to know what the living water is? The living water is what you've been looking for in men and you haven't been able to find it. I'll tell you what the living water is. It's what you've been pining after with, with the ad- looking for the admiration and the attention of men and you haven't been able to find it. He's telling this woman, he says, look, you're, you're looking and in, in, I'll tell you what you're doing in your life. You are looking for living water in all the wrong places. The living water is over here this is what you need, and yet you are stuffing all sorts of other things in your life to try to fill that need. And here's the thing it keeps on leaving to you. And you know, you're not learning your lesson because you've done it five times. And you're about to do it again. Don't you see that there is a tragic pattern in your life? And until you see the tragic pattern, until you acknowledge what's going on in your sinful patterns, you will never experience the living water. The tragic pattern is that we, 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 are, we are almost addicted to f- filling this void in our lives with almost everything else in this world except for the one that will actually fill it. What I love here, what is, what's so insightful about what Jesus is doing is he's connecting her sin with her thirst. And this is so psychologically penetrating and so insightful, because most of us, when we look at a pattern, you know, think about last year, and all the bad habits, something you want to change, you think, oh, I need to stop doing that. And maybe you might heap shame on yourself. Ah, that's bad. I need to stop. That's wrong. And, And maybe you might punish yourself. Like Dobby the house elf in Harry Potter. You know, you're banging your head on the ground. Stupid me. Why did I do this? Shame on me. Why do I do this? What's wrong with me? And you concentrate on the pattern, on the behavior. But Jesus is going underneath. He says, you've got to ask the question, why? Why do I do that thing that I do? What's underneath that sin? And Jesus is saying the reason why a woman gives her her body to a man that that she never should do, a man that she never should give her body to, the the reason why a, a man logs onto that pornographic website, the reason why that man goes after the illicit affair, the reason why you spend one more night at the office when you should be home with your family, is not just because you're a bad person or you've got bad habits. It's because you're thirsty. And you're trying to fill that deep, infinite void with you name it, sex, money, power, e- everything you can get your hands on in this world. And what Jesus is saying is that this will never satisfy you. It's a tragic pattern. It reminds me of the Old Testament uh, where Jeremiah he, he looks at the people of Israel, and the people of Israel have all kinds of bad habits. They're into sex and, you know, power-hungry and all this stuff, oppressing the poor. But he doesn't necessarily hammer on the behavior. He goes beneath the behavior, and he says this, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. He says, my people have two evils. They have two problems. They have forsaken the, f- the fountain of living water. You see, Jesus is playing on this Old Testament verse. And they have hewn for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. You're ignoring the one thing that will satiate your soul and you're trying to stuff it with something else. A broken cistern that will hold no water. You see, if you'll look underneath, not just why am I doing this, but or or, stop doing this and all that stuff, it's it's why am I doing it? What is underneath these patterns in my life? And I think you'll find, if you if you look there, that there's a thirst. that you're trying to quench, and that sin's not going to do it. Uh, Albert Camus, in one of his books, he talks about this pattern, and, and he's got this character in this book who's uh, into illicit sex and drinking, and he's got all these character flaws. And finally in the novel, he, he stops and he kind of realizes what he's been doing when he's going after all these things. And the character in one point in the novel, he says, because I longed for eternal life, because I longed for living water, I went to bed with harlots, drank for nights on end, slept with bliss, but awoke with the bitter taste of the immortal state. You see, he's saying there's something underneath all of these pursuits. There's something that I'm, the reason why I'm going after harlots and booze is because I'm thirsty. So the question this morning is, what is your broken cistern? What is the well that you keep on going back to over and over again that is not going to quench the thirst that you have? And Jesus, is, is, this is what he's doing with the woman. He's connecting her sin with her thirst. He's saying you've got to understand that there's your, your, your sin is a God substitute. You're, you're, you're looking to that thing to fill you. It never will. And you've got to see this. You've got to acknowledge this. This is why I'm bringing this up. You've got a tragic, tragic pattern. Come on, work with me, woman. Come on, let's go talk to me here. I want something. I don't want to give you living water. Oh, I want it. It's there for the asking. No strings attached. But you've got to acknowledge something. You've got to leave something. You've got to see something about your tragic pattern. Well, that's all well and good, but somebody might say, well, okay, okay, I've, I, I'm thinking about that thing in my life, and I do know I have this pattern, and I'm, I'm, th- I'm doing these things because I'm thirsty, but how do I stop? I'm in this cycle, uh, just like she was, you know, from man to man to man, and and she's in there. How do you get out of a cycle like that, where you're trying to look to something that doesn't fill your need, it leaves you even more thirsty than it did before, and you leave it thirstier and and wanting more than you did before you even tried it? How do you get out of that pattern? Well, notice here, uh, Jesus uh, finally uh, brings her to a point where he needs to get her in touch with her Savior. What I want you to see here is that this woman does get free. Uh, By the end of the story, the woman does get free. I mean, she gets out of this pattern. I mean, at the beginning of the story, she comes with guilt and shame and and isolation and loneliness. By the end of the story, she runs back into the village and she says, you've got to meet this man. I met a man who changed everything in my life. She gets free and she changes. And how does it happen? Well, I want you to see it happens when she comes face to face with Jesus Christ. She has an encounter with the living God. In Jesus Christ he, he brings her face to face with her Savior and so, and so let's go on in the story and so he says you know you've had these five husbands and here's your tragic pattern and this is what you're doing over and over again and, and in verse 19 there's almost like a pause in the story he says go get your husband I have no husband you've had, that's right you have no husband you've had five and the one you're living with now is not your husband and it's almost like she's like oh my gosh Pregnant pause, dramatic moment in the story. And then notice what she does here, verse 19. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> She's going to change the subject. This is what we always do, right? I mean, it's getting super uncomfortable. He's getting, he's, he's putting his finger on this thirst and this problem and the shame and what's going on. And, and what is she going to do? I'm changing the conversation. I'm going to push this away from me a little bit. Sir, I perceive you're a prob- prophet. Prophet. You bet he is. He just told you everything you've ever done. And then notice what she does. She goes, kind of deflects into this theological debate. And so she says, uh, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that, uh, that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And uh, so she, what is she doing here? She's, she's getting into theology. She's, she's deflecting into this debate, you know. I mean, these kind of debates and arguments are way safer than Jesus. And so she goes on and on, blah, 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 theology, theology, theology. I'm not gonna, we're not gonna go here. And notice Jesus goes with it. He's like, oh, yeah, the, the, you know, woman, listen, there's coming a day when God will seek true worshipers that, that want to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so he's engaging in this dialogue with her. And they're coming towards the end here. And the woman, you know, she's finishing the debate. And, and in verse 25, the woman says, uh, yeah, I know that when Messiah is coming, he's, who's called the Christ, when he comes, he's gonna tell us everything. She's concluding the conversation here. She, you almost pick her, she, she's gathering her things and she's picking up her water bucket. And, uh, yeah, I know when the Messiah comes, he's gonna tell us everything. And, and, and that's when we're gonna know, all right, goodbye. And she's on her way out. But then Jesus says something that stops her in her tracks. Verse 26, And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And I almost picture her just standing there, speechless. She puts everything down, and she drops her water bucket. And as she looks into the face of this man, this woman is changed forever. As she looks into the face of Jesus and she has this encounter, her life will never be the same. Because what, what, what does she see? What does she see in this moment? I mean, it captures her gaze. Notice in the story, as she's looking at Jesus and all the disciples come back. And it does, she, she can hardly even notice that they're there. She is just locked in the gaze of this man. What does she see when she looks into the face of Jesus? I want to suggest that she sees three things in the face of Jesus. Number one, she sees the greatness of the person she's talking to. Here's this man, he's a Jew, and he's come all the way to her little town, all the way to this well, all the way to this conversation. She, he, he's come all the way from somewhere to come and talk to her. And who is he? This is the Savior of the world. This is, she goes back and she says... I met the Savior of the world. This is what she tells everybody else in the village. She realizes at that moment that this man who has condescended to talk to her is the greatest personage in all of human history. This is a man in whom heaven and earth come together. This is the Savior of the world, and he's talking to her. And she can't believe this. Why would he be talking to me? I can't, I don't, how would he even know me? Why, I mean, this is, this is incredible. She realizes the greatness of the person she's speaking to. Second of all, she realizes that he sees her to the bottom. He's told her everything she's ever done. And here she is standing in in, in the presence of this greatness, and it's almost like a spotlight. He's just shining the light on every dark, dirty thing in her life. He sees everything. He knows everything. This this is her takeaway. She goes back into the village and she says, Come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Her heart is open and naked in front of him. But she finally realizes a third thing. She finally has met a man who stays. So you've got to get this. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the greatest person in, in all the history of the world, and he sees everything dirty about her, everything that she's ever done, and, 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 here, and here he looks at her, and he says, you know, I've seen all of it, and I'm not leaving. And every other man in her life has left her you know maybe they got too close and, and and we don't know whether she left or whether he left but the fact of the matter is they got close they saw her shame they saw all that stuff and they said bye-bye I'm out of here but here's the man who sees all of it more than anybody else ever has he sees all of her brokenness and he says I'm here I'm not leaving I'm not going away You know, there's another place in the Gospel of John where it mentions the sixth hour. It's the afternoon that Jesus was crucified. And there on the cross, what do we see? We see Jesus Christ nailed to a cross. And at any moment, he could have called on a legion of angels to come and get him down. He could have gotten himself down. But there on the cross, he stays. Seeing everything dark about us, he says, I'm coming, and I'm staying, and I'm not going away. Romans, uh, in the book of Romans, it says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He saw all the dark things about us, and yet your God in the face of Jesus looks at you this morning and says, I don't care what you've done. You can't hide anything from me. I know what you're up to. I know what you've done, but listen, I am not leaving. On that day on the cross, Jesus the living water cried out, "I thirst." And in that moment, he was experiencing the dehydration that comes with separation from God. And he was doing it for you. He was doing it in your place. He was doing it because he is just that committed to you. And so this woman, she looks at Jesus, who, who doesn't go away, who seems so committed to her, and she's never known love like this before. She's never seen love like this before. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, uh, To be loved and known is comforting but superficial. But to be known and not loved, well, that's our greatest fear. But to be fully known and fully loved, this is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. And that's what you're looking for when you log on to that website. And it's what you're looking for when you stay one more night at the office when you should be at home, and it's when you look. It's what you're looking for when you give your body to that man, who doesn't love you. It's what you're looking for. And Jesus says, "You will never change the way I want you to. You will never break those habits, those tragic patterns, until you look into my face and realize that I am better. That I am the only one in this life who will satiate your thirst." Until you are filled up with me, to such an extent that you don't want those other things anymore. Now we're gonna next week, like I said, we're gonna go on and we're gonna look at habits and rhythms and uh, you know kind of things that you could put in your life to make space for transformation. But it all begins with this. It all be this is this is at the bottom of all life change. It is coming and having a, a real encounter with Jesus and His grace, and realizing that He's better. He's what you need that He loves you, that there is nothing that you can ever do that will cause Him to go away, that He has done every single thing to offer you His life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for uh, this, this story about this woman who had, she's so relatable. M- maybe we haven't done the things that she's done, but all of us can relate to shame. All of us can relate to, to doing those, those dumb things over and over again and wondering, Uh, What needs to happen in order for us to to come to our senses? Lord, we need to see you. Yes, we need rhythms and disciplines and all this stuff, but God, I pray this morning that you would convince us that you are what we need. Lord, we pray that you would do a deep, deep work in our hearts as we gaze at you, as we see your love, as as we glance once again and reflect on the gospel. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name.